0: Good morning. I'm Debbie Cruz. It's Thursday, November 3rd. It's harder to vote if you're in the military. More on that next. But first, let's do the headlines. President Joe Biden will be in San Diego today to campaign for Congressman Mike Levin. Representative Levin, who is a Democrat, is in a tight race against Republican Brian Marriott. They are facing off to represent the 49th Congressional District, which covers most of northern coastal San Diego County and part of southern Orange County. Levin has represented the district since 2018. The county is working with two local high schools that have reported cases of TB. The county and school districts have notified those at high risk who may have been exposed at Mission Bay and Montgomery High Schools earlier this year. TB screenings for those at high risk are also being arranged, but additional students and staff may have been exposed. The possible exposure periods were from April 2nd to September 16th at Montgomery High School, and from June 17th to July 10th at Mission Bay High School. TB symptoms include persistent coughing, fever, night sweats, and unexplained weight loss. Most people don't get sick right after they are exposed to TB Sometimes it can even take years for someone who was infected to get sick. It's starting to feel like fall here in San Diego County, and we may see rain again today. There's a 30% chance of rain with possible thunderstorms this morning, and in the mountains it's going to be cold, windy, and raining, and snow levels are expected to drop. If you're planning to head to the beach, the weather conditions are predicted to bring in a rough surf and a high risk of rip currents through tomorrow morning. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need.
1: Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right.
0: Voting for members of the military is much more complicated than for civilians, especially if they're stationed overseas or in a combat zone. November's election comes 10 years after Congress passed laws aimed at making the process easier. But as Jonathan All reports for the American Homefront Project, the rules are not consistent from state to state. In the 2008 election,
1: 91% of all absentee ballots from civilians were returned successfully but only 50% of absentee ballots from overseas military members were counted. That led Congress to pass a law that set requirements for states and their voting authorities, usually counties, to make voting easier for military members. Donald Inbody is an Army veteran and author of The Soldier Vote. He says the biggest issue for military voters is getting their ballots on time so they can return them before the deadline. That's one of the reasons the law was passed, that states had to have their ballots ready to go 45 days before the election. That was The primary purpose for that was to allow the state to get an absentee ballot overseas, give the person time to fill it out, and then have it mailed home. The 2010 election saw an almost immediate improvement, with 33 percent of overseas ballots coming back too late. Nowadays, states are supposed to mail paper ballots sooner, and a handful have implemented online voting for overseas troops. In Missouri, State Election Director Chrissy Peters supervises the online portal.
0: And if a, a military or overseas voter is in a hostile zone, then they can utilize the portal to return their ballot via the portal. And or if they are choosing to receive their ballot via email, they can return it um, that with that method as well.
1: While not all states go to that length to make it easier for military members to vote, the latest numbers show the percentage of military absentee ballot rejections is down to single digits. Making it easier for military members to vote is generally popular among politicians. Republicans, like Missouri Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft, are tightening voting access in the name of security, but he is willing to expand opportunities like online voting to members of the military.
0: Clearly, when someone has potentially been sent to one of the worst places in the world by Uncle Sam to defend the freedoms of those of us that are still in Missouri. We need to go to Extra Mile to make sure that they uh, can participate.
1: While it's easier for military members to vote and their absentee ballots are getting back on time more often, that isn't changing the percentage of service members voting. According to the Defense Department, 47 percent of troops voted in the 2020 presidential election compared to 74 percent of civilians with similar demographics. Scott Weedman is the deputy director of the department's Federal Voting Assistance Program, which provides resources to help troops navigate the election process. We see that folks who actually avail themselves of either the guidebook, our website, the voting assistance officers um, have a much higher percentage chance of successfully casting a ballot in the election if they avail themselves of that. Inbody, the veteran and author, says some of the tactics states are using to help service members vote might work their way out to the rest of the population. The whole idea of absentee ballots didn't exist until the Civil War, when Congress wanted to let soldiers on the front lines vote. Inbody says it's not unreasonable to think that someday online voting could be as ubiquitous as absentee ballots. Using the experience that they see in the military to Pass those rights on to other American citizens, there's certainly historical precedent to that. Making it easier for everyone to vote may seem fraught with political implications, especially in the current climate. But InBody says even back in the Civil War, creating a mechanism for absentee voting was motivated by elected officials hoping it would help them get reelected. And that change stuck. In Rolla, Missouri, I'm Jonathan All.
0: This story was produced by the American Homefront Project a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the Bob Woodruff Foundation. While it's been years since police incorporated surveillance tools such as drones and license plate readers, but this week the Chula Vista City Council approved a policy that is meant to protect the privacy of residents as police use these tools. For more, here's KPBS reporter Amitha Sharma. Under the new policy, Chula Vista will form a commission to oversee the police department's use of technology and set up rules governing how it acquires surveillance tools. The new policy also contains a provision on storing and selling personal data. This comes two years after revelations that Chula Vista police shared data collected from its license plate readers with immigration officials. Pedro Rios of the American Friends Service Committee, who was part of the working group, called the policy a good first step, but he says the city needs to go further.
1: I'm disappointed that it's not an ordinance. An ordinance would have much stronger power to ensure that people's privacy, civil liberties would be protected.
0: City officials have not ruled out such an ordinance in the future. Amitha Sharma, KPBS News. High Tech High Teachers demanding action on their pending contract now expect a final response from charter school administrators by next week. With an update on this, we have KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez.
1: Since January, almost 700 teachers and classified workers have been in negotiations with the High Tech High Charter Management Organization. The latest bargaining session ended with a commitment from CMO leaders to respond to demands within a week. Both sides have agreed on a pay raise. They have not agreed on a third-party due process for teachers who were fired or the probationary period for new teachers. Hayden Gore is the Teachers Union president.
2: What we are asking for is honor, recognition, and reward from the Board of Directors. And frankly, what we are advocating for is simple industry standard.
1: The high tech high interim CEO has said, quote, we will continue to show up with integrity, decency and a spirit of dialogue to meet the needs of all members
0: of this community. M.G. Perez, KPBS News. Coming up, the San Diego Asian Film Fest kicks off today. We'll bring you the details That story and more next, just after the break. Stay close.
1: KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org.
0: Well, I hope you're like me and really digging this chilly weather. Some winter weather has made its way to San Diego, bringing wind, rain, and snow to parts of the region. KPBS reporter Jacob Ayer takes a look at what the latest storm means in terms of the mega drought, as well as the water supply struggles affecting much of the western U.S. Even with the recent wet weather in San Diego County, climate change is rapidly accelerating in California, according to a new state report. The National Weather Service's Alex Tardy explains how that can affect the state's water supply.
1: Um, Our long-term deficits are still significant uh, in Southern California. And especially Northern California and the overall water supply being at its lowest state um, on record for the Colorado system and near record lows even for California.
0: Tardy says this upcoming fall and winter is projected to be drier and warmer than average for the third year in a row, continuing the region's ongoing drought issues. Jacob Air, KPBS News. This month, medical professionals are spotlighting a disease affecting more than a whopping 133 million Americans. KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman says local health providers are continuing to notice climbing rates of diabetes.
1: November is National Diabetes Month, and doctors say it's all about prevention and early detection. Any patient can work with his or her physician to help make the basic changes in lifestyle that can help prevent the onset of diabetes. Or if we catch diabetes really early, then that's the chance that we can intervene. Dr. Aaron Lehman is chief of outpatient internal medicine at Kaiser Permanente San Diego. He says people are being diagnosed earlier, but rates of diabetes are also increasing. The main concern is is the lifestyle, either not having an active lifestyle with a lot of exercise or not eating a balanced nutrition. Risk factors can involve underlying conditions, family history, and lifestyle habits. Matt Hoffman, KPBS News.
0: The 23rd annual San Diego Asian Film Festival kicks off today with the documentary Bad Axe at the San Diego Natural History Museum. This year's festival returns to pre-pandemic numbers with more than 130 films from more than 30 countries screening at four venues. KPBS film critic Beth Alcamondos spoke with the festival's artistic director, Brian Hu, About some of the films.
2: Brian, you are about to launch this year's San Diego Asian Film Festival. But before we talk about the films, I wanted you to remind people of the breadth of the festival in terms of the different countries that are actually represented. Yeah, usually when people think about Asian cinema or Asian anything, they think about Chinese, Korean, Japanese. But one of our goals is to remind everybody that Asia is the biggest continent in the world and they're making movies everywhere and really good ones at that. So obviously, we need to talk about India. Um, India is one of the biggest producers of film in the world. And India makes more than just Bollywood films. India has this bustling new independent film scene, films made in multiple languages. And so we've got a couple of films from India. We have films from Afghanistan, films from Indonesia, Uh, We we also especially want to highlight the films from the Pacific Islands. So we have uh, work from New Zealand. And I I would say the heart of our festival is actually the films from um, Asian-American, Asian-Canadian filmmakers. This is a film festival that is largely uh, founded and organized by Asian-Americans. And I think uh, one of our goals is to give a platform for marginalized voices here in the United States. I mean, Asian-Americans don't have huge visibility in Hollywood or in the mainstream media so those filmmakers and artists who will go out there to put themselves on the screen we want to give them a platform as well. And one film that you have comes from Australia which is We Are Still Here and talk about this this is like an anthology film. We've seen a number of anthology films coming from the Pacific Islands recently. I guess the idea is when you have so many young new filmmakers who are just dying to have a chance to tell their stories why don't you just put like 10 of them in one in one movie <laughs> right? uh, and so usually what we get is like a feature-length film from new zealand for instance with eight short films together and together they show a kaleidoscope of the maori experience but this one is a little bit more ambitious than that yes they're putting they're allowing filmmakers from New Zealand, Australia, Samoa, to each have their own little short piece. But they're woven together in a way that they're overlapping. One begins, another, and then stops halfway. Another one begins, then it resumes later on. And the really ambitious part about it is, uh, I think they take as an impetus, like um, Captain Cook's arrival in the Pacific Islands as a kind of like spark to uh, indigenous people having a voice. But then that cascades into talking about anti-colonial resistance and then that that turns into this like um, incredible imagining of what the future might look like so it has this kind of a sci-fi element too has animation yeah so not only does it show that there are many voices in the pacific islands of uh, indigenous voices but that they're really thinking outside of the box and it's, it's not just like we'll give you money we should give you money to make indigenous films we should give you money to make any kind of movies because you can make animation and sci-fi and, and everything else And you have a section called Classics Restored, and this is really exciting for me because I love the old Hong Kong, like, new wave films that came out. And you have two that feature Johnny Toe and starring Michelle Yeoh. So talk about Executioners and Heroic Trio. Oh my goodness. All right, so so we have this section called Classic Restored. And it's usually, you know, like the the important films of the past that people have put thousands of dollars into restoring. Because, I mean, like in the United States, Hollywood is constantly investing in their libraries because they can still make money off of them. In Asia, it's not necessarily the case. And not only does that mean we don't have access to these films, it means we don't even know what the classics are. The Heroic Trio and Executioners. These are not films you would normally think about as the important films of world cinema. Oh, but they are. These are just the wildest 1990s Hong Kong action movies. Not necessarily like in terms of just breathtaking action, but also just these are a little deranged. But most of all, it has just the three most spectacular stars of Hong Kong cinema, I would say of, of cinema anywhere in the 1990s. You mentioned Michelle Yeoh, and Michelle Yeoh is having a moment right now. She was in this year's surprise hit, Everything Everywhere All At Once. So it's got her, it also stars Anita Mui, who recently had a huge biopic made about her that we showed at our spring showcase in April. And then it also stars the one and only Maggie Chung. And to see the three of them, at their the peak of their powers, kicking butt, just being totally memorable, on top of the fact that there's a director like Johnny To just allowing them to do the most deranged things. I'd say this is a classic. And for me like growing up in a you know, Chinese household, I remember watching these movies on like VHS tapes or VCD, just like not good quality. But you know, whatever. My parents wanted me to learn Chinese. So to see this film now on like a 4K restoration on a big screen, we just tested the film yesterday, it looks incredible. And then the fact that there's a, the, the sequel, Executioners, also has a 4K restoration. I mean, this is, this is too irresistible. We're showing both. And it, it's selling well, and we know that the audience is going to have such a great time.
0: That was Beth Accomando speaking with Brian Hu. The San Diego Asian Film Festival runs through next Saturday, the 12th. Its home base is at the Ultra Star Mission Valley, and with additional screenings in Balboa Park, and at UC San Diego. That's it for the podcast today. As always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Debbie Cruz. Thanks for listening and have a great day.